Friends, let me invite you to take your Bibles and turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 4. 1 Corinthians chapter 4. And if you're here this morning without a copy of the Bible for your very own, we would love to give you one. We've provided some on the back of the seat in front of you. It should be within arm's reach, a little black hardback copy of the Bible. Um, it'll be real helpful that you have it open for the next bit of our time together. On page 896, you'll find the section that we're going to look at this morning. But please do take it with you. Don't just use it this morning. We'd love for you to have it and for you to continue to read more about what you'll hear this morning. 1 Corinthians chapter 4 is where we'll be today. Um, recently, I had a big trip coming up um, and asked for asked a friend for advice about what to listen to on this trip. And he put me on to the audiobook version of a best-selling memoir by the founder of Nike, Phil Knight, called Shoe Dog. You guys know this book? Shoe Dog? Anybody else? Only a few of you. Uh, really highly recommended. If you've got a long trip that you need to run out the clock on, this is a page turner, metaphorically speaking. Um, it is, it's, it's a gripping story. I haven't finished it yet, but I will because I, I got to know how this ends. It's awesome. Um, right near the beginning of this story, Phil Knight, uh, before he gets into the details of his story, zooms out a little bit to talk about where he came up with this idea, what he calls the in caps crazy idea for a shoe company to challenge the hegemony of the German shoe companies for the American market. And, and what he says at the very beginning of this book is that his crazy idea and the notion of, of, of going for it, no matter how risky, flowed straight out of really what he wanted for his whole life. It came from his, his vision for himself. I guess you could also say it came out of his vision for what he didn't want for his life. For example, here's how he talks about his dad's vision of a good life, a vision he very much did not want for himself. Knight writes, I was aware that 26 of 27 new companies failed and my father was aware too. And the idea of taking on such a colossal risk went against everything he stood for. In many ways, my father was a conventional Episcopalian, a believer in Jesus Christ. But he also worshipped another secret deity, respectability. Colonial house, beautiful wife, obedient kids. My father enjoyed having these things, but what he really cherished was his friends and neighbors knowing he had them. He liked being admired. He liked doing a vigorous backstroke each day in the mainstream. Knight, by contrast, in the early 1960s, around the time his dream took shape, he says, I found it difficult to say what or who exactly I was or might become. Like all my friends, I wanted to be successful. Unlike my friends, I didn't know what that meant. Money? Maybe. Wife? Kids? House? Sure, if I was lucky. These were the goals I was taught to aspire to. Part of me did aspire to them instinctively. But deep down, I was searching for something else, something more. I had an aching sense that our time is short, shorter than we ever know, short as a morning run. And I wanted mine to be meaningful and purposeful and creative and important. Above all, different. I wanted to leave a mark on the world. I wanted to win. 
Who do you want to be? What do you want your life to become? What do you think success would look like for you? Maybe you resonate with Phil Knight's dad. That vigorous backstroke down the main stream. (laughs) You want to be known to have the things that most people around you want. Maybe you resonate more with Phil Knight himself. Dig in your own channel outside the mainstream. Something meaningful and purposeful and creative and important and above all, different. In 1 Corinthians chapter 4, we get a, a taste of Paul's manifesto on life. What Paul wanted his life to be for. How Paul viewed success. And it's aimed directly at his friends in Corinth because of what he wants them to want for their lives. All all of chapter 4 is framed as this direct challenge right in their face based on, on what he's been hearing about what they want. And he wants something better for them. He wants for them what he has himself. Let me begin by reading this chapter to you. I want to ask you to stand with me in honor of God's word. I'm going to pick up in verse 1 of chapter 4 and read to the end of the chapter. Paul writes, This is how one should regard us, as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found faithful. But with me... It's a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I don't even judge myself. For I'm not aware of anything against myself, but I'm not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, don't pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. I have applied these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, brothers, that you may learn by us not to go beyond what's written, that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against another. For who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? Already you have all you want. Already you've become rich. Without us, you've become kings. And would that you did reign so that we might share the rule with you. For I think that God has exhibited us, apostles, as last of all. Like men sentenced to death. Because we've become a spectacle to the world, to angels, and to men. We are fools for Christ's sake, but you're wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are held in honor, but but we in disrepute. To the present hour, we hunger and thirst. We're poorly dressed and buffeted and homeless. And we labor, working with our own hands. When reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. We have become and are still like the scum of the world, the refuse of all things. I don't write these things to you to make you ashamed, 
but to admonish you as my beloved children. For though you have countless guides in Christ, you don't have many fathers. For I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. I urge you then, be imitators of me. That's why I sent you Timothy, my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, to remind you of my ways in Christ as I teach them everywhere in every church. Some are arrogant as though I were not coming to you. But I will come to you soon, if the Lord wills. And I will find out not the talk of these arrogant people, but their power. For the kingdom of God doesn't consist in talk, but in power. What do you wish? Shall I come to you with a rod or with love in a spirit of gentleness? This is God's word. You can be seated. Did you notice that the whole chapter builds to that last paragraph where he tells them what he's getting at? You know, what he wants for them? A few of those, of those final verses explain why he sent Timothy to help them. You know, some housekeeping. Here's why Timothy has come. Please use him in the way I want you to use him. And a few of these verses promise a visit from himself when he's going to challenge those leaders who've been leading them astray. But did you notice right at the center of that last paragraph is a striking appeal to them? I urge you, verse 16, be imitators of me. Paul describes himself as their father in the faith. He describes himself as a father who loves them and wants, wants what's good for them. And because he wants what's good for them, because he loves them so deeply, he says to them, my beloved children, imitate me. It's striking to me at one level because it seems to run against what he's been saying all along. I mean, up until this point, he spent a lot of his time telling them not to line up behind leaders, to focus on Jesus, not, not, not who you're with. I'm of Paul, I'm of Apollos, I'm of Cephas. He said, no, don't do that. It's not about these leaders. And now here he says, imitate me. Striking, isn't it? I think the key lies, though, in what, in what he's called them to. Not follow me and you'll reach the top. Not follow me and you'll be the envy of the neighborhood. But follow me into humility. Or as he puts it later in this very letter, follow me as I follow Christ. Paul wants them to experience the freedom that humility brings to the person whose, whose main goal in life is to mirror the beauty of Jesus. Not to make a name for himself or herself, but to glorify the name of the one who came, lived, died, and rose for them. I think Paul lays out in verses 1 to 13 his model for his own life, what he wants them to experience in their life, what it is that he wants them to imitate. And that's why for almost all of our time together this morning, that's where I want us to focus. I want to zoom in on verses 1 to 13 it's, it's this section that Paul has in mind when he says, imitate me, be like me in this way. And I want to unpack this section, verses 1 to 13, in three steps framed around three questions for you to consider for yourself if you want to grow in humility. Question number one, whose opinion matters most to you? 
whose opinion matters most to you? Look with me back at the beginning of chapter 4. In these first verses, Paul is bringing the whole section around the third base and headed for home. Back at uh, chapter 1 and verse 10, he'd called them out for lining up behind these different leaders, trying to make a name for themselves by drafting on the coattails of the leader they thought was, was above the pack. He called them out for that. Now he gives them a positive view. He's been saying, don't think of us like that. And now he says, here's how I want you to think about us. We are, verse 1, servants of Christ, stewards of the mysteries of God. In other words, we're not the point. We serve the one who's the point. We preach the gospel that is the point. We're focused on him. We're accountable to him. That's how he wants these friends to see him and the other apostles. But then in verse 3, he tells us something absolutely remarkable about how he sees himself. This is the first thing he wants them to imitate. Look at verse 3. With me, it's a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I don't even judge myself. Basically, Paul says, I don't care what people think about me. It is a small thing that you should judge me. Same holds true for any other human court anywhere. It just doesn't get to me. I know what's happening. I know people are drawing conclusions about me, spreading talk about me. I know I can't stop that. I know I can't control it. I know it's not always favorable to me, but I don't care. It's small to me, not big. And you can almost hear a chorus of kids authors and movie makers for the last 30 years cheering Paul on, can't you? You tell them, Paul. You tell them. They don't get to tell you who you are. They don't know you. They don't get to define you. Now this is a man. Here's a man with a solid self-esteem. No one gets to him, but not so fast. Next thing he says in verse three, (laughs) I don't even judge myself. He knows better than rest on what he sees either. He He doesn't think about what they see as a big deal, but he also isn't that into what he sees about himself. I think it's because Paul knows how fickle and distorted our perspective on ourselves usually is. I mean, the Bible is so clear on this. Somebody described our view of ourselves as, as kind of like a carnival mirror, you know? There's some truth in there. You can get some detail about it, but it's all distorted. Some of it's too big. Some of it's too little. It's messed up. And you can't really tell where it's too big or where it's too, too, too small. You don't have a standard to judge it against if all you've got to go on is you. You can't trust what you see. One of my, uh, one of my favorite writers is a psychologist named Jonathan Haidt. Uh, in one of his books, his early books, he sums up a bunch of research about how wrong we often are about ourselves <laughs> on both sides. He says sometimes we, we suffer from what people call a confirmation bias, you know, where, where, where we see the best and we want other people to see the best in us. And we spend a lot of time trying to prove that we're right about the best things in us. We tend to overvalue what we have already or on the one hand. Even beneath our thinking at, at a kind of instinctive level he has he cites studies that show our preference for things like this one of the most interesting to me is he cites this study where a guy figured out that people named Dennis or Denise are slightly more likely than people with other names to become dentists did you know that (laughs) men named Lawrence and women named Laurie are more likely to become lawyers 
Louis and Louise are more likely to move to Louisiana or to St. Louis. And he says it even shows up in marriage records. People are slightly more likely to marry people whose names sound like their own, even if the similarity is just the sharing of a first initial. Well, it'd be fun, wouldn't it, right now to stop right here and just see if that's true, even in this, own, in our, in this room right now. I'm not going to do that. I'm sure that you take his point. The, the, the point is that, 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 that even at a subconscious sub-rational level, we respond well to things that remind us of us. But he says it works the opposite way too. We suffer from what's called a negativity bias or something bad that happens to us or something bad said about us by someone else. That registers at a deep way that's hard to remove in a way that, that 10 times as much positive reinforcement can't overcome. Doesn't that ring true for you? Something that you've done that you wish you hadn't done I bet occupies more of your mind and your heart than 10 things you did right this week. The point is, it just confirms what the Bible says about us. We don't see ourselves clearly and we can't trust our own judgment. And if me feeling good about me is my foundation for life in the world, it's not foundation enough. That is a problem waiting to happen. And Paul doesn't even judge himself. And he says, verse four, I, I don't know of anything against me, but I'm not thereby acquitted. Just because I don't think there's anything wrong out there doesn't mean there's not. I do not judge myself. I am not the standard. So look at what he says next. It is the Lord who judges me. Verse five, he will one day bring to light the things that are now hidden in darkness. He will one day disclose the purposes of the heart. It is then that each one will receive his commendation from God and only then. God's opinion is the one that matters, not what other people think, not what Paul thinks about himself. It's kind of like if you were sued in civil court, you know, somebody maybe gets injured on your property and thinks you're responsible for it. It doesn't really matter if that person thinks you're guilty. They can think that all day long. That's not the standard. It doesn't really matter if you think you're innocent or line up a ton of your friends who just confirm to you that you're innocent. They're crazy. That ain't your fault. Line them all up. Get as many as you can. Doesn't matter. What matters is what that judge will think about whether it's your fault or not. His opinion is everything. And the Bible teaches that we relate to God like, like a judge. We owe everything to him because he made us. And one day he will give his opinion about our lives. This is a judge that can't be bought. He's a judge who never gets distracted. He's a judge who doesn't shade the truth. He is perfectly just, sees everything even into our very motives and will judge every one of us perfectly. I wonder, would you be okay if everyone in here could see what's gone through your mind and through your heart this morning? Much less what has gone through your mind and your heart throughout your whole course of your life? I wouldn't. No way. I could not stand up to that. On its own, this notion that God is going to judge everything, that he sees it all, that's terrible news. 
And why would Paul be so confident about this? Why would Paul think that is a better place to know yourself than in what you think about you or what someone else thinks about you? It's only because of the message Paul's given his life to preaching. The message that he said over and over in the first four chapters of this letter is the only thing he came to know among them. The only reason Paul can be so confident about God's opinion of him is that Christ has been crucified. The message that Paul gave his life to and the message that's rallied all of us who trust in Christ to to, to this place this morning is a message that begins with a problem. There is no way for me or for you to pass the judgment that's coming. No way. No matter how much we might accomplish, no matter how much money we might acquire, no matter how noble your birth order or how wise or how educated you've become, no matter all the things that are turning heads in Corinth, no matter any of that, all of them fall wayfully, woefully short of God's standards on that day. Because all of us have fallen short of God's glory in our days. That's the bad news. But the good news is that God God so loved this world that he made. So loved even those sinners who turned their backs on him. That he sent his son to take the punishment for our sins. That's Christ crucified. So now when God looks on anyone who turns to Christ... What he sees is not those sins that they bring to the table. He sees the perfect righteousness of his son. He sees Jesus. He loves Jesus. His heart's thrilled by Jesus. And when he looks at the life of anyone who trusts in Christ, Jesus is what he sees. And that's who Paul knows his whole life rests in. Here's how Paul put it in his letter to the Romans. If God's for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? So who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies, Paul said. Who is to condemn? Can you see that? that, That's Paul's confidence for his own life. He's confident because he's not living in limbo anymore. It's like he's got the opinion leaked in advance. He knows what this judge will say about him when the time comes. He knows that judge will look on him and see Christ and he will say, not guilty. And not just not guilty. He will say, worthy, righteous, perfect, not an inch short of my glory. He's confident about the day of judgment because he stands in Christ and he knows how the Father sees his Son. And our growth in humility depends on knowing that God's opinion of us is the one that matters most. God's opinion matters most. Can you see how freeing it is to accept that? You know, friends, if you accept that, you know, it means that that you don't have to prove yourself to anyone. Don't you know how much pressure it brings to live our lives out in the open, especially in the heyday of social media, feeling like we are always, always branding. Like we're always pushing an image of ourselves that we hope others will buy into. 
Like we're always measuring whatever that image is against whatever image other people are always projecting. Doesn't it feel like, here's how one person put it, doesn't it feel like if, when you feel that pressure, like you're just relentlessly running up a down escalator, right? If you stop, you're not getting anywhere, that's for sure. But if you stop, you're going down. You let up, you let your foot off the gas. Sorry to mix my metaphors. You're going down while everyone else goes up. It's exhausting to feel like you live in a courtroom of your peers who are always passing judgment on how well you're playing the game everyone else is playing. That is no way to live. The gospel promises that where it matters most, we don't have anything else to prove. We are already as righteous as Jesus and that is righteous enough. Can, can you see that this also means you don't have to defend yourself to anyone either? How freeing is that? You ever had somebody close to you who always seemed to see the worst in you and maybe tended to let you know about it? <laughs> I bet you have. I mean, your parents treated you that way. And you felt like you could never satisfy them. Maybe you got coworkers who were always down on your work. Maybe it's close friends. Maybe it's your spouse. It can be relentlessly discouraging, can it? Do you know what it feels like to, to always be on trial in somebody's mind and heart? To feel like you're always just giving more evidence to a prosecutor who's gonna, gonna use it against you? A prosecutor who smells blood? To, to feel like you can't climb out from under this weight because everything you do just passes through a filter that distorts things even more? Have you ever felt deeply misjudged by somebody that you cared about and helpless to set the record straight? I bet you have. And if you have, you've probably felt exhausted trying to convince yourself of what you wish they could see, but you can't show them. <laughs> I bet you know what it is to play defense attorney in your own mind before a courtroom that only exists in your own head, a courtroom that never takes a recess, a courtroom in which everything is fruitless because the jury you're arguing for isn't there to hear any of it. That is a rough way to live. It is no way to live. It is exhausting and discouraging. And the gospel's promise is that you don't have to live that way anymore if that's what you're feeling today. The courtroom that matters, there is one. And in that courtroom, before that judge, the trial's over already. The evidence is already in and so is the verdict. You are righteous if you're in Christ. Every now and then, I do feel misjudged by someone. Let me just tell you how, how I'm trying to follow Paul's model. I'm trying to imitate him in responding when I feel that way in my own life. I, I, the first thing I try to do, usually after I've realized that it's happening, I've already wasted some time on it. First thing I try to do is to recognize my desire to defend myself for what it is. It comes from pride more often than not. I want to be seen as right. That's important to me. And sometimes it's okay to want to defend yourself because it might affect your relationship with somebody. You want it to be strong and healthy. That depends on, on clear, shared understanding. So sometimes it is appropriate to share a perspective that they may not have seen before. Sure. But more often than not, I'm too proud to let something go. It's not a small thing to me, what they think. It's big. And so the first step has got to be naming that for what it is. That's pride and repenting before God. God, forgive me. 
And then, after step one, the way I think about it, there's two options. I might be the one who's misjudging me, and they might be the one who's misjudging me. Maybe they see something about me I don't see yet. I try to consider that and ask the Lord to show me what I'm blind to. And short of him showing that to me now, I know that one day on the day of judgment, I will see it. If they're right about me, I'll face that on the day of judgment. I'm going to need Jesus for that day. And then I remember I have him. (laughs) Jesus will stand for me on that day if I don't see it until then. The, The other option is that maybe they're wrong about me and I'm right about me. Maybe they have misjudged me. It may be that they'll need to wait for the day of judgment to see that that's true. And when I think about that, I pray that the Lord will make that enough for me. On the day of judgment, the one who judges on that day already sees what's true now. Even if they can't, even if they never do in this life, he does. And his opinion matters. His opinion is the one I live for and from. And before this God, I'm forgiven, I'm adopted, I am his child, and he judges me. Then I do that again and again and again and again and again until I get some rest. (laughs) Friends, do you want to grow in humility? I bet you do. I do. Do you want to grow in humility? First ask yourself, whose opinion matters to me most? Here's a second question to ask yourself if you want to grow in humility. Who gets credit for what you have? Verses 6 and 7 return to a theme we've already seen several times in these early chapters. The Corinthians, we know, have been dividing from one another, and it's not about doctrine. It's about style. They want to stand out. They are, as he puts it in verse 6, puffed up. I love that image. They've got inflated views of themselves. They're blowing themselves up, hoping to be the bigger balloon. And they've been using their leaders as a pretext for that age-old desire to rise above the crowd and make their mark. Phil Knight was not the first person who ever wanted to do something meaningful, purposeful, creative, important, and above all different. That's old. That's what Paul calls being puffed up. It's basically what the Bible calls pride. I love the way C.S. Lewis describes pride in his book, Mere Christianity. You've probably heard me quote this before, but I can't help quoting it again here. Here's what C.S. Lewis says about pride. He says, pride is essentially competitive. Pride gets no pleasure out of having something, only out of having more of it than the next man. (laughs) We say people are proud of being rich or clever or good looking, but they're not. They're proud of being richer or cleverer. I don't think that's a word, but he's C.S. Lewis. Better looking than others. If everyone else became equally rich or clever or good-looking, there'd be nothing to be proud about. It's the comparison that makes you proud. The pleasure of being above the rest. He nails it, doesn't he? Isn't that exactly what's going on here in Corinth and what we're tempted to? And sometimes even encouraged to want for ourselves. But look look back at the text. Look how Paul pushes back. Verse 7. Who sees anything different in you? You guys who want to stand out. Who sees anything different in you? What what do you have that you didn't receive? And if then you received it, 
Why do you boast as if you didn't receive it? You see what Paul's doing there? He's pointing us to, to another key component of humility. And sometimes we can look down on humility or think of it as looking down on ourselves. Like humility is, is beating yourself up for knowing that you've done so much wrong. But in the Bible, that's not what it is. Humility is, is knowing you've got everything to be thankful for. Humility is knowing that, that God has been wonderfully and undeservedly and unbelievably gracious to you. It's being more preoccupied with what you've received from God than with how you stack up against others. Paul is showing us just right here in verses six and seven, these two sides to growing in humility. Part of it is, is becoming more and more sensitive to the pride in our hearts. That's where he, he's calling them out when he says, who sees anything different in you? Don't be puffed up. Don't be looking for where you stand out. He's warning us to be careful for where we most want to be noticed. And we might see this best where we most resent someone else being noticed. That's part of growing in humility, more and more sensitive to the pride in our own hearts. But the other side is becoming more and more sensitive to the, to the goodness of God in our lives. Paul is trying to get us to change the way we examine our lives, not for what we have to offer, but for what we've already received, not for what we've accomplished, but for what he's given to us. A lot of times we examine our lives, it's like we're building a resume. We want to look for the things that we bring to the table, things that we can put on a resume of our accomplishments or skills, the things we hope will be noticed by others. Paul is saying, examine your life by all means, but do it more like a bride at a bride to be at a wedding shower where you're opening up gifts and recording them. You want to send thank you notes for those later. You're recording the gifts that you've been given with great attention to detail. That's how Paul wants us to live our lives. What have you, what do you have that you have not received? Pay attention to the goodness of God in your life. Uh, friends, I think a, a really helpful discipline each day is to is to start praying through the small stuff, which is really the big stuff, you know, at the beginning of the day, maybe even finish the day with it. To, to pray through a catalog of what you can't not get from God. To pray a thanks to him for the fact that you have breath in your lungs. At a fundamental level, your life depends on it. You wouldn't have it apart from him. Pray thanks to him for the sleep you just had, even if it wasn't as much as you wish it was. When you wake up in the morning, thank him for giving you sleep. Thank him for food if you have some. If you're warm, thank him for making you warm. If you have a dry house to wake up in, thank him for that. That's his gift. If you have friends and family around, give thanks for the fact that he surrounded you with those people. And most of all, thank him for Jesus. I mean, look at Jesus' Lord's Prayer as a model of the kind of things we should pray for. It's also a pretty good model of the things we should be most thankful for. It's the basics. It starts with a prayer for God to get glory and then says, please, God, our daily bread, we need it. We can't get it by ourselves. Please feed us. Please, God, forgive us because we know we've been wrong. Please, God, protect us, deliver us from evil. It's prayer for food, for forgiveness, for help. And if God has given you food, if God has forgiven you, if God has helped you, thank him. That's humility. Kids, I want to speak to you guys for just a minute here. Something you're going to hear a lot as you grow up 
often from really, really well-meaning books or movies or teachers, is that what makes you special is that you have gifts nobody else has. I actually think that's true. You do have gifts nobody else has. God is wonderful as a creator. Everybody he makes is unique. That's true. But sometimes focusing on what you have that nobody else has can make you feel like you're only going to know you're worth something when you know where you stand out. That's a lot of pressure to live with that I don't want you to feel. It can make you feel a ton of pressure to figure out what you're good at as soon as you possibly can. You know, people tell you you're special, then you got to figure out why that's true, don't you? Am I good at, at math or English? Am I good at science or history? Am I good at sports or am I, I good at like creative stuff like the arts? If I'm good at sports, which one am I good at? If I'm good at arts, which, which one? Let me tell you, kid, do, please do not fall into that trap. Because, because when you find the thing you think you're good at, the thing you're special at, the thing you're rising above at, it's only a matter of time before you run into somebody else who's better at that thing than you are. That is going to happen. And when that happens, that'll make you wonder, what, what, what am I worth then? I don't want that for you. Even more important than that, I don't want you to fall in that trap because there's just no reason to. Let me tell you what's important about you. God has made your life important. The most important thing for you to know is not what you're good at, but to know that God has been good to you. You need to know God has been so good to you. When he made you, he made you in his image. That means you're way more special than your pet. When God made you, he made you to reflect his beauty, his creativity, and you do. And God sent his son to rescue you from sin if you'll trust in him. And every good thing you have, you have because he loves you. That's what makes your life important. Who gets credit for what you have? That's the second question to ask yourself if you want to grow in humility. And here's the one I want to leave you with with the last few minutes. Question three. What do you expect from your life? The most striking section to me in Paul's recounting of his own life and what it's like has got to be verses 8 to 13. I mean, one of the reasons it's striking because it's just brutal. I mean, he just comes at him double-barreled. He uses irony and satire. He, he just comes at him with, with everything he's got. He's mocking them in a way in verse 8. Already you have all you want, he says. Already you've become rich. Without us, you've become kings. And would that you did reign so that we might share the rule with you. You see what he's doing? Like, the things you want, those are not my things. I don't know where you pick up on this stuff, but, but you're way out of line. You can see why he needed to soften it a little bit in verse 14, saying, hey, look, I'm not writing to make you shanked, okay? Might have sounded like it, but I'm not. I promise I'm not. I can't, I'm writing to admonish you. You're my children. I love you. 
that's striking because of the language he uses. But, but to me, it's also really striking because of what Paul tells them about his own lifestyle and then calls them to imitate. Look at how Paul describes himself in verse 9. He says, I think God has exhibited us apostles as last of all, like men sentenced to death, because we become a spectacle to the world, to angels, and to men. You know what he's talking about there? There's a whole host of history behind that picture in verse 9. He's talking about the parades that the Roman rulers would lead into town after they'd gone out into the, the provinces and done battle against the other tribes. They would win, and then they would have a huge victory parade back into the great city. At the head of the parade would be, would be the Caesar. Behind him would be the generals, you know, who, who helped lead the men into battle. Maybe some other heroes would be right behind them. You know who was last of all? The men sentenced to die. The ones who had been captured, the prisoners of war, the spectacle of shame and brutality that was, that was to celebrate the victory of those who had conquered. And Paul is saying, that's where we are, me and the apostles. The Corinthians, they wanted to be winners. They wanted to ride at the front of a parade like that one, right? They wanted the best saddles on the finest stallions. They wanted garlands and cheering crowds and all the rest. Paul says, that's not us. We're back at the back. We're being dragged to execution. Verses 10 to 13 make it even more obvious what he's talking about here. We're fools for Christ's sake. You're wise. We're weak. You're strong. You're held in honor. We in disrepute. We're hungry and thirsty, we're poorly dressed, we're buffeted, we're homeless. We have to labor with our own hands. We have real jobs. We get reviled. We're persecuted. We're slandered. That's his life. And he's good with all of it. It's like Paul is saying, I, I just don't expect to win the game that everyone else is playing. That's not what I'm doing here. That's not what I want from life. Why? Friends, it's because when Paul asks them to imitate him, it's because he's already imitating Jesus. He wants Jesus' life for himself. He expects from his life to get what Jesus got. Do you see the echoes of Jesus' life in what Paul's saying here? It's, it's meant to be clear to us. Jesus was the man who was sentenced to death, put on display as a spectacle to the world and to angels and to men. Jesus was mocked as a fool, even as he hung there dying. Jesus was weak. Jesus had a reputation that was destroyed. Jesus went thirsty. Jesus was stripped naked. Jesus was buffeted around from, from one to another in this crowd, beaten by this mob. Jesus' only home was a borrowed tomb that his dead body was laid in. Jesus is the one who taught himself in his Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Then rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you, and so they would persecute Jesus too. Paul's life mirrors Jesus' life. Jesus defines humility for us. So what do you Expect from your life if you're in Christ. Friends, I'm not suggesting that it's not okay to enjoy good gifts from God. Absolutely, we should. And I'm not even expecting that your life will mark, be marked by the same kind of suffering that Paul's was. Lord willing, it won't. 
I think the question for us, rather, is, is whether or not we're aiming our lives, leveraging our lives at gaining more and more of what Jesus didn't care about and avoiding the path Jesus chose for himself. I mean, just look back at verse 11. Paul says, to the present hour, I'm hungry and thirsty. I'm poorly dressed. I'm homeless. And if you're living an average middle-class lifestyle, I wonder how much time and effort you're putting into maximizing what you'll eat and drink, improving what you'll wear, upgrading where you're living. By all means, receive and enjoy the good gifts God gave you, but what do you pursue? What fires your heart? What dominates the feeds that you put in front of your eyes? Is it trying to fill up what Jesus willingly emptied himself of? Are you trying to optimize what Jesus didn't care about? How much of your time and emotional energy and money would go, would you get back if those sorts of things weren't a priority for you any more than they were for Paul? We ought to expect what Jesus got. That means suffering now, glory later. And we learn by imitating. So who are you imitating? And what does that say about what you want for your life? Let me pray that the Lord will help us to face that question honestly and to learn from his word this morning. Father, we thank you for speaking to us even when it's sometimes hard to hear. We pray that you would give us hearts that are soft to your word and eager to obey. And we pray that through the power of your spirit, working through this word we've just looked at, you would make us into people who more reflect the beauty of Jesus. We pray in his name. Amen.